The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Good afternoon. The, um, in response to... Uh, in response to public demand here, let's see, how many people, do you, you got again, the colors may have faded by now, but check if when you tilt your head, the effect changes. Yeah. How, many, how many people still have some sort of an effect? It's really nice to know that, that this course has some lasting impact on people. Um, the... Uh, and, and Mara, maybe we should try. Shh, maybe we should try posting the uh, um, the PowerPoint on the web because then, if you want to build up your own McCullough effect, you you can do this and entertain yourselves. Um, if you have been following the story thus far, you should have been. Um, you should basically have the idea that at the front of the visual system, or of any sensory system, you got all sorts of um, information coming in, that the job of early processes in the visual system is to, well, to do the sort of things that the early parts of visual cortex are doing and say, oh, look, there's a little line at this point in the visual field. Oh, look, there's a dot there and, 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 and there's a line here and it's moving like that. Little bits of information all over the place. Um, too much of it for you to handle. So last time I talked about this bottleneck of attention that allows only some of it through... Um, to do to uh, to processes that would do things like say recognition, and then I'm going to run out of places to draw. We'll take a little detour here. Somewhere up here, you're going to get perception, and the job of today's lecture is to convince you that that percept, your current understanding of the world, is always the result of a many, many inferences, many, many guesses um, about what the nature of the world might be. Because this information, for, not only is there too much information coming in, there's also too little information coming in to specify exactly what's going on out there in the world. Um, consider just a couple of the problems, I think, are they on the handout? A couple of them are. Well, the, one of the obvious ones is the world is 3D. The world, your job is to figure out what's going on out in the world. The input is inherently 2D. That retina um, that you've got is a 2D surface. So if you're seeing 3D, you are recovering that 3D information from, from essentially 2D um, input. You're collecting um, information about light intensities. You don't care about light intensities. You care about surface properties in the world. So every patch that you're seeing, you know, if you're looking at this, this spot right here, what you're seeing is the product of 
um, the surface, the properties of the surface and the properties of the illuminant, the properties of what's lighting it up. You don't care about the properties of the uh, illuminant. You want to recover just the properties of the surface. So how do you ignore, how do you successfully ignore the properties of illumination? We'll say a little bit about, uh, about that. The world you're looking at is an essentially stable world. I mean, things move around in it, but the whole world doesn't jump around. But you're looking at it from an inherently unstable vantage point. You're moving around, and more to the point, um, even if you're stock still, the way you're looking at the world is you're moving your eyes around. Um, Try this for a moment. Look at the lower left-hand corner of the screen. Without now, without moving your head. Uh, well, actually, probably that might be a little large. So look at the lower left-hand corner of this McCullough effect test pattern. Look at the lower right-hand corner of the McCullough effect test pattern. Did the McCullough effect test pattern jump when you did that? No, it didn't. Why didn't it jump? Because you know, when you look, move from when when you're looking here. Do I have a laser pointer today? No. Oh well. When you're looking here, the image is to the, the bulk of that square is to the right of fixation. When you're looking here, the bulk of that image is to the left of fixation. So it's in two different spots on the retina. If I put something here and something here on your retina, it'll look like it's moving. Why didn't that look like it's moving? The reason is that when you tell your eyes to move, you send a copy of that command, in effect. Um, to visual centers of your brain saying, look, I just told my eyes to move. Kindly ignore the, um, the resulting smear. In fact, I want you to do two things. I want you, you your visual system, I want you to, um, ignore, to, to shut down during the course of the eye movement and I want you to, um, to compensate for the fact that everything has been displaced. Um, you can see what would happen if that was not the case by taking your finger and poking your eye. Um, so, you know, on, on your eyelid, you should try this because um, it's more interesting if you actually try this. If you, if you wiggle your eyeball, you can do it slowly or you can do it quickly. You know, look at me and poke your eyeball around. You will notice that all your friends look funny, um, but that you, you'll notice that things are jumping around. Why is that? Well, look, millions of years of evolution did not provide you with a mechanism that said, that, you know, I am now going to poke my eye. Please send a, 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 a copy of that signal to the visual centers of the brain saying to cancel that out. There's no cancellation signal here. And so you see the image moving around. You don't see the image uh, moving around when you move your eyes normally because you're, you're compensating. You're compensating for it. Um, all right, so you're collecting all this information. You're doing your best to register it in a, in, a, in, a, in a stable kind of a way. Oh, look at that. It also says I'm going to demonstrate the visual, the, the, the vis, visual vestibula, the vestibular ocular reflex. Let me do that um, just because you might as well get to use your fingers some more. Um, you also want the world not to jump around too much when you're moving your head. One of the things you do very reflexively is if you rotate... If you wrote, you take your head one way, your eyes counter-rotate the other. That's a very quick reflex. If you want to see how quick it is, try this. Hold your finger out in front of you. Look at your finger. And move your head back and forth and just keep your eyes on the finger. 
No problem, right? Yeah, yeah, you know you can do that. Now, try to do at, at the same speed, move your fingers and try to keep your eye on the finger. Can't do it. Does, doesn't work because that, re, that, that reflexive movement or that, that, that tracking movement is there are more neurons involved it's a slower um, process this visual the vestibular ocular reflex is a very short latency kind of a reflex designed to keep the input relatively stable so you take all that lovely input in you got all these little bits of information all over the place and then you've got to make your best guess about what it is that you're looking at. The reason that this is an interesting picture, it's in the book by the way, so when you can't see it here you can go and study it in the book until you can see the Dalmatian dog that really is there. How many people can see it now? Right. Oh, we got most of them. Just, just for, you know, that's, his head is right above my finger, front paws, back paws, he's on a, a, a road sloping from lower left to upper right. Um, the point of a picture like this is that it slows down the process of inference enough that you can sort of feel it happen. Normally, when I look out at you, for instance, my visual system kicks up one and only one interpretation of what I'm looking at so rapidly that I never notice all the work that's involved. The purpose of this picture and really the purpose of this lecture is to show some of the work that's, that's involved. So, um, what you've got here is a bunch of isolated little black and white regions. In order to figure out what's going on here, you've got to decide who goes together. How are we going to decide who goes together? Well, let's think of this in the context of a bunch of little line segments. Um, that's, uh, a, you, know, you can sort of decide that some of these guys might go with some of the other ones. But what I'm going to do is rotate all of them by 90 degrees, as I recall. Boop. Well, no, maybe some other orientation. But anyway, now there's a bunch that go together. They're the same lines on the screen, but now some of them hang together, right? got that sort of potato shape thing there. Why? What makes these guys go along with each other now in a way that they didn't before? Well, if you've got an isolated, if you're, if you're a little uh, chunk of brain that, uh, whose job it is to figure out where contours are out in the world, what you're getting from earlier in the visual system is word that yeah, there's a little bit of a contour here, there's a little bit of a contour here, a little bit of a contour here. I wonder if those should go together. Now, how do we decide if the little bits of contour might go together? Well, you might do something like this. If you've got, um, so, you know, suppose you've got this, whoop, come here, where's my little, there we go. Um, if you've got a, a, a line here and you're asking, what's the best bet? about where this, if, 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 if this is really a, a, a piece of a continuing contour, where is this likely to go next? Well, it might make a hairpin turn and go off that way, but that's not, doesn't seem really likely. More likely, it's going to go off in the direction, in something like the direction that it's pointing. And that turns out to be, whoops, these are the random ones, there's the potato-shaped ones. Uh, this is a very rule-governed, uh, sort of behavior, if you've got a bunch of little line segments, as long as the deviation here isn't more than about, as I recall, 30 degrees or so from collinear, you're willing to string those together pretty happily. 
If it starts to be more than that, you're, you're unlikely to, to, uh, to string them together. The beginnings of an effort to tie little pieces of, of, of information together into, um, into larger structures. Um, all right, what do you see here? Two lines crossing each other. Reason, reasonable, uh, a, a reasonable interpretation. Though it's not the only possible interpretation of this. I mean, it could be something like this. Um, you know, two birds kissing each other or, or, or something like that. Um, why do you see... And, and in fact, uh, I, you know... Right, you know, this is something like that. I... I uh, um, and you see that as, a, as an X with two lines crossing each other. But, you know, if I provide enough other details here, you know, it's a sea lion. It's a sea lion. It's a, I don't know what it is. Um, the point, the point is he's still a lousy artist. It hasn't gotten any better. Um, the, the point is more or less the same, that if you've got this little, you know, a process that's worrying about that little piece of uh, um, line segment gets to this junction, you know, it's busy doing the, you know, three roads diverged in a yellow wood kind of thing, trying to decide which way to go, and it's guessing that oh, all else being equal, that's, I, I should probably go with that. Um, this is, it says on the handout, no, I mean on the, uh, oh yes, okay, it, it, it it's, uh, sometimes goes by the name of good continuation. It's one of a variety of so-called grouping rules that were developed first by the Gestalt psychologists starting in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and they're really rules for figuring out how bits of the scene might hang um, hang together. Um, you can see a similar sort of process going on um, here. You can see that as three isolated line segments, but you probably don't. You see that as a curvy line that's occluded, right? You, the, if, if I suddenly reveal this, you don't go, oh, amazing. You see, yeah, that's kind of what I thought was there. That's also highly rule-governed. Um, if you've got a line segment um, and you've got another line segment, you're perfectly happy to see this one and this one is connected. Um, if I... Well, how about this? This will, this will do. If I, can, if I put one up here... All the more if I erase the stuff in between. <laughs> eh, that you're less likely to see as connected. Now, why are you less likely to see, see it as connected? The rule turns out to be that if I can connect two lines with a smooth curve, um, I'm in business. I'll be willing to see those as connected, but if I have to put an inflection in it to make it work, then it doesn't look as, as convincing. I mean, it's not that I deny the possibility that this could ever connect with that, but if I give people um, a bunch of stimuli like this um, and ask good connection or bad connection, 
The good connections are ones that can be done can be done with a single smooth curve. That can't quite. I think you probably have to get an inflection in there somewhere. Um, and if you have to inflect the curve, it uh, it fails. Or people people report it as looking less less convincingly continuous. Um, all right, it's, it's voting time here. Again, see here we've got a whole bunch of isolated guys, but they do seem to have something to do with each other. Um, if you had to pick this being organized by columns or rows, how many vote for columns? How many vote for rows? Uh, ain't much to choose, right? But if I do this, okay, how many vote for columns? How many vote for rows? So we've now skewed it very heavily in the direction of columns, and all that I've done is change the proximity of, of elements. Once uh, the distance from one item to the next item in a vertical direction is closer than to the items in the horizontal direction, this it's another one of these gestalt uh, grouping rules of proximity takes over and says, well, you know, all else being equal, if I had to guess who goes with who, the guys that are close to each other, they probably go with each other. Um, multiple rules operate at the same time, so I'll keep the proximity rule working here. Now, if you have to vote, how many vote for columns? How many vote for rows? So now I've skewed it very heavily in the, in the direction of rows, even though the proximity law, the proximity rule is still going for columns. Those the thing, things are closer to each other in a vertical direction than horizontal. In this case, the similarity um, is trumping that. You can balance these off against each other. How similar do, does it need to be to compensate for a two-to-one difference in, 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 uh, in distance, for instance, or something like that? But the important point here is that what you're trying to do, these are, these are you know, uh, demonstration versions of presumably what you're doing all the time. I'm looking out there, and I'm seeing... Um, yeah, the regions, regions of, what am I seeing? Regions of redness. And there's this, I see a few sort of disconnected regions of redness, but I'm guessing they're all part of her top. Yeah, your, 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 it's your top there. Because, um, anyway, yeah, it's you. Um, no, not her. That's pink you're wearing. You're, no, no, the woman behind you. Well, the woman next to you is also red. Um, but in this case, I'm not doing a sort of a pro proximity... Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, you can see the role of proximity here. So the similarity thing is telling me all those red things are tied together and I'm making it into sort of one piece of clothing. The, uh, the proximity thing is saying, well, you know, I don't think her red top and her red top are the same red top. That would be a very weird assumption to be made. On the other hand, the guy she's sitting next to is also wearing red. So maybe they're just wearing one garment. I... No, I'm probably not going to come up with that assumption either. But it's these, what, what my visual system is doing is continuously trying to cut the world up into um, meaningful chunks that are going to be worth subsequent analysis. I don't want to go off and analyze every little uh, pixel in the scene. I don't have, the, uh, I, I don't have the, 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 the brain power to do that. I want to have meaningful chunks that are worth analyzing. So here I might decide that the meaningful chunks were the rows, that, you know, that they, they are a something or other. Um, okay. 
one of the reasons that you need, so there are a couple of reasons why you need to do this grouping business over, um, uh, over little elements in the, in, in the world. One of them I was sort of cartooning over here, which is that early in the visual system, the chunks of the, of, of the brain that are looking at bits of the world are only looking at very teeny bits, and you're going to have to tie those together. The other reason is that out in the world, contours don't behave well. They tend to do awkward things like disappear on you. And you don't want to get the idea that these are, um, that, that, that a contour, well, you don't want to get the idea. If I've got a contour like that, if for some reason bits of it are, are deleted, maybe because there's an occluder or maybe because something just bad happened in the image, you don't want to lose the, the, this whole structure because bits of it have been um, deleted. So you have a lot of clever mechanisms designed to help you find where the edges are of things um, out there in, in, in the scene. You can find, and, 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 and putting the bits of edges together into a long, coherent one. If you play with Photoshop, you can go and find the edges. I think, isn't there like a find edges filter or something? So try that sometime. Do find edges on the filter. Uh, uh, find edges on, on, on an image of, say, um, you know, a person. And you'll see that it, it comes up with a lot of edges that you recognize as being related to this person, but it's fragmented all over the place. And in fact, getting your computer to figure out which bits go with each other is, is, a, is a tricky piece of work. Um, it's tricky for you, too. You just don't know that it's tricky because it works all the time. All right, so uh, this beautifully boring stimulus is there um, because you see this beautiful vertical contour, right? It's there. Now, all I'm going to do, I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to put a new background on it. Whoosh. Isn't that lovely? Um, why is that interesting? Well, among the reasons it is interesting is because it's the same gray stuff that was there before. So the top of that bar and the bottom of that bar are still identical. Um, all four of those little rectangles are all identical, even though they no longer look identical. Um, because what the, what the system is doing is... Well, actually, I can probably... Can I do this? I forget what I programmed. Yep. Oh, there we go. Look, he's going to turn into that one. Isn't that fun? Oops, get back there. There we go. Um, but my, my real point here, so that, what, what that is is a simultaneous contrast effect, by the way. This one, the, the, this square looks bright because it's surrounded by darker stuff. That square looks dark because it's surrounded by brighter stuff. And even though this bar is continuous in its, in, in its gray level from bottom to top, it picks up its apparent brightness from the surrounding, um, the immediately surrounding contours. The interesting aspect of this, from the point of view of, of um, understanding where edges are, is that, um, well, look, if it's darker, if, if, if the bar is brighter than the background here, and darker than the background up there, there must be a place in the middle where it's gone where there is no contour. But you don't see that. It's actually a fairly... I, did, I, I don't think I, I... I was too busy making this little thing move. And I didn't put in a... 
No, I forgot to do that. Oh, well. Um, it's, 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 an, it's not a small region. There's a fairly sizable region of the middle there where there is no physical contour. But you fill it in. You know in some fashion that that contour is, uh, is, is there. That's called a subjective contour where you're completing a contour that doesn't have uh, um, any real support in the image. That's the piece that your Photoshop filter will have a hard time doing, by the way. Um, oh, you can also, we can also do, oops, we can also do a, a, a second order effect here that's kind of, well, no, we'll do that later. Um, oh, come on, go away. You've moved often enough. Okay, let's continue the same point here. All right, everybody sees this rectangle, right? And what's, uh, the, the rectangle is, is, is uh, what, what are those black things? Three-quarter circles, yes. The literalists have figured out that these are Pac-Man or three-quarter circles or something like that. But you didn't really see that when it came up. You said, oh, it's a rectangle sitting on top of four, uh, four circles of some variety. And, in fact, you still see it as a rectangle sitting on top of four circles. In fact, you're probably reasonably convinced that you can see the contour going, hmm... That's weird. I'm reasonably convinced that there's an interesting artifact on the screen that's creating contours. I don't know what that's about. It looks better over... It looks, looks less bogus over there. Um, you can probably see the whole rectangle. The white-on-white -white borders are not there. There simply is no physical contour there. There may be here because the projector's doing something mutant. Um, but there's, there's certainly no contour there, even though the rectangle at the center looks somewhat brighter. Again, what you're doing is making a guess about what is it that actually created that image that's landing on my retina now. It could be a little conference of pack people, right? Four little three-quarter circles who got together to talk to each other. But that doesn't seem the most likely possibility. What seems more likely here is that it's a white rectangle sitting on top of um, four, uh, four, white cir uh, four black circles. And you end up completing that, uh, that contour, or this circle for that matter. What are you doing here? Um, Oh, you don't need by the, you, you, you don't need to uh, have fancy computer graphics to do this. One of the advantages of this particular of the material in this particular lecture is that um, it provides great material for doodling in other lectures. Um, so, if you like subjective contours, you can make your own and. So, you can, how's that look? Got a subjective contour there? Sort of. Yeah, it's not perfectly circular. That's okay. And, 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 but what seems to happen is that you generate a hypothesis that says, you know, the contours, the, the, the whole problem I got here is the contours don't just end in the world. They tend to continue. Well, if this guy is continuing, well... What happened here? Well, maybe it ran into a, a, another edge and it's being hidden. Well, all else being equal, it probably ran into an edge that's orthogonal to the direction it's going. Let's guess that. 
And if we guess a whole bunch of little orthogonal edges, we're back to that earlier demonstration with a bunch of little, with a bunch of little line segments. I can, I can tie those little bits together. They, they make a kind of a circle thing. So I end up seeing that imaginary circle. And in fact, I'm going to start filling in the contour all the way around. That suggests, by the way, that if I was to tilt all these lines a little bit off of straight radial so that the virtual line segment was not forming a nice, neat circle, that the impression of a subjective circle would get weaker. And you can decide whether or not that's true here. So, see this circle? Now, the, the, the question is, um, is this version... We'll give you three choices here. Um, stronger, weaker, or about the same. How many vote that this one is stronger than the previous one? How many vote for just about the same? How many vote for weaker? Uh, just about the same. That's a boring demo. I'll have to change that next year. Because um, it didn't work well enough. The, uh, okay. Another, another example, uh, this, this is, if you're following along on the notes, we have now gotten to the so-called Craig O'Brien corn sweet illusion, named after Craig O'Brien and corn sweet. We're continuing the edge business, but now, what I want to do is, is, is tie that into that topic that I mentioned early in the lecture about how it is that, um, uh, that what you're interested in is things, the surface properties in the world, and you're not interested in lighting. Lighting is very boring. Um, so, well, what, what, do you, what do you see here? Some, some, some bold soul described this complicated image. Boy, slow group. Hmm? A, gr a gray thing. Two gray things. Okay. All right. If you, if, and, and, and if you had to... Uh, it, one's darker. Oh, boy. This is... <laughs> I'm going to bring my pliers next time for... This is like pulling deep. Yes? It's, um... I, like, the way I can see it is, like... You see, like, the top of the pyramid, and it's, like, shading on the other side, like... Top of the... Oh, 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 yeah. Okay. So the light's coming from the left or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, a complicated inference about these, these things. Okay, but what you don't particularly see is this. If I take the edge out, if I take that edge away from the, um, from the middle here, what you discover is that the whole thing is the same gray. That's, that's, not, that's not obvious. If you were to draw the luminance profile, drag a photo detector across this thing, what you would get is something like this. Which side is bright? Okay, that side's bright. So it rises, then drops across the edge, and then rises back like this. So that if you take out the actual edge, it's equal on the two sides. So that's kind of weird. Why does it look like... Now, what? remember... Here, here, here. Well, they didn't believe me. They thought I was doing something evil here. Yeah. Whoops. Ah, here we go. Look, that's why I had this thing slowly sneak up so you could, well, semi-slowly. <laughs> Fastly sneak up. Um, 
What's going on here is that the visual system knows something about edges and about lighting. Edges in the world tend to be fairly abrupt. Lighting changes, so it's bright here and dimmer over here, lighting changes tend to be fairly gradual. So if what I'm interested in is seeing what's on the surface as, opposing to, as opposed to seeing what's um, the, the, the product of, of, of boring light and shade variations, what I might want to do um, is to look for abrupt changes and to, in effect, suppress gradual changes. And that's what's going on here. Um, now, you can also, you can also do an, 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 a, we might as well do an entertaining second order effect here. Um, stare at, re re remember that negative afterimage thing, you know, look at red, you see green and stuff like that? What I should be able to do here is produce a negative version of this effect um, where you'll end up seeing this side is dark and this side is light even though I'm not going to change anything over here or over here. Uh, well, so stare, stare, at the center, stare at that center line. Right? Stare rigorously at the center line and keep staring. And then when I do that... So this is two, two illusions concatenated on top of it. Do it again, was that? Yeah. Do it again. This is... All right, for... Whoops, whoop, got to go back this way. For the people incapable of following instruction, um, the first time, try it again. So sta stare, at the, uh, stare at the center and hold your fixation there. Actually, the people who got it the first time, keep staring at the center, but the people who got it the first time can try something trickier, which is move your fixation a little bit and you'll change the proportion that looks uh, light or dark. Isn't that fun? You should understand why that works. If you don't, write yourself a little note on your paper saying, I don't understand why that works, and figure it out. All right, so the important thing is that what you're trying to do here is you're trying to get rid of information about the light. You don't care about the light levels. What you care about is what's going on in the world. Now, Ted Adelson in the, in the Brain and Cogs department here has exploited this fact brilliantly in a variety of gorgeous demos, um, one of which is this. It is extremely difficult, even if you've seen this before, to convince yourself that the gray levels of A and B are identical, which they are. In fact, it's so difficult that even if I stick a bar across it that's clearly the same thing, it's still kind of hard to see that as identical. Your brain wants to do all sorts of things to deny that possibility. Um, what's going on here? What's going on is that that virtual cylinder is casting a virtual shadow that you are busy discounting. You're saying, I don't care about the shadow. There's a cylinder, there's a checkerboard. I know about checkerboards. Checkerboards go dark square, light square. I can figure this out. That means that B is a light square because it's like surrounded by dark squares. And A is a dark square because it's surrounded by light squares. And um, it's a particularly lovely example of, among other things, this ability to get rid of information about uh, 
the illumination. This isn't to say that what you do is somehow just run some sort of throw away the light source information and don't do anything with it. Um, whoops, get back there. Yeah, what's it say? Cow. Cow, okay. Um, they're only white and black on that screen. Look at the sea and ask where that contour is coming from. That contour, particularly the outside of that, uh, that, that sea, has extremely little support in the image. What you are doing is making an inference. This time you're using the shadow information. You don't want to see, you don't want to see the, uh, the shadow. How, how many people see it as not only as cow, but as an embossed word cow sticking out a little bit? Right, that, that the reason you're seeing the cow at all is you're assuming that those black things are shadows. If those black things are shadows, it follows the light is coming from the upper left. If the light is coming from the upper left, well, we can go and, 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 and figure out what shape object must have been producing those shadows. And the answer spells cow. But if you were to take a look at, the C is, about, is, is the clearest, well, I don't know, the O is pretty good too. And so is the W, for that matter. Anyway, look at any of those guys and look at the shapes of the black bits, which is the only thing that stands out from the background, of course. There's nothing else there except the black bits on a white background. You know, none of those bits say C or O or W. It's a construction based on the assumption that the black bits are shadows. Um, you use those, that sort of information uh, all the time to do things like see faces. These are so-called Mooney faces, named after a guy named Mooney, um, where um, you, know, you can see, you, you can tell me a lot about the curvature of these faces, even though, again, there's nothing on the screen except for black regions and white regions, none of which are themselves particularly face-shaped. I mean, look at the eye. Are any of those eyes actually shaped? Look at the guy on the right. I mean, his eye, he's only got one, apparently. The other one's in full shadow. That eye looks like, I don't know, a mutant bunny or something. Um... If, you had, if, if I just presented, I should do this. If I just presented the eyepiece on, on, uh, uh, on, on the guy on the right, that, that black blob that's defining his eye, if I just presented that in isolation, nobody would say, oh yeah, sure, that's an eye. They'd all be saying, Dalmatian dog before mutant bunny this time or something. Um, and it relies on these assumptions about shadows. That's what is, is what you're doing here. Um, you can it, 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 it survives inversion reasonably well, at least the. Um, but those don't look like faces very much. What went wrong? Well, you might think, well, what went wrong is I know that shadows aren't red and blue, but that's actually not the problem. Here they look pretty good, right? Those faces look okay, but whoops, these faces look lousy. Why do they look lousy? Somebody raise a hand. There's some th yeah, there's a theory. Yes, if you, if you make the shadow regions lighter than, than the lit regions, the brain says, that's not a shadow. I know, you know, I don't care about shadows. I don't want to see shadows as 
entities in their own right particularly most of the time. But I'll tell you one thing I know about shadows. Shadows are darker than the other stuff. If the shadows are lighter than the other stuff, it's not a shadow. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something else and something weird. So this doesn't work, but that works. Oh, I suppose the fact that it said on this one, shadow must be darker, might have tipped some people off. Um, the, uh, okay, let's see here. I think what I will do, this makes a very natural break point where it says Mooney faces, and we'll go on to this question about making the best guess you can make in the context of 3D, um, going from 2D to 3D. So, but before we go on to that, let's, uh, let, let, let's take our brief stretch-your-limbs kind of break here. that I will talk about later on in the term. Um, but, uh, but looking around at this crowd, I, I would say that uh, you're not getting the uh, seven to eight you need. Um, and uh, Or if you are, maybe you really need ten and you're catching the extra two here. Um, but let me... Um, There are lots of ways, so I've been talking about sort of little, almost like atomic, small-scale examples of, 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 of uh, these sort of inferences that you make, um, and now what I want to do is sort of uh, head for the, sort of the larger picture of how you make an, an inference about the whole scene. I'm not going to get all the way there, and, and, and I also can't really 
there, there are many realms I could talk about this in. So I'm going to talk about it in one restricted area, which is this question of going from a 2D image to 3D inferences about the world. Something that you do automatically all of the time. And um, I want to explain a bit about how you do it. You will see on your handout there's this very useless um, blank region that says 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Um, I'm going to go through a series of depth cues, probably more than five of them. Um, and that's what's supposed to go in there. There are lots of different sources of information that you use to go from the 2D world to the 3D world. Um, Many of them seen here in this lovely piece of Renaissance art that we will come back to. But here is a much more boring piece of art. What do you see? Yeah, a circle, square, and a diamond, right? And then there's the, the, the clever person who's trying to figure out. I described them as Pac-Men before, but these aren't that. But you see a circle, a square, and a diamond. You don't have any serious difficulty inferring that. A triangle, sorry. Um, you don't see this. For present purposes, the important point here is you can also tell me their depth order, right? I mean, it's, it's in some sense so obvious that you never think about it. But it's a very important source of, of, um, of information about depth order that you get simply because you know that solid objects occlude each other. So you firmly believe that I am standing in front of the screen. I could have, well, no, I couldn't have. It would be theoretically possible that I have suddenly cut a cunningly wolf-shaped hole in the screen and I'm actually like, I, I'm A, very large, and B, standing over, you know, towards East Campus somewhere. Um, and you're looking at me through this set of holes. Right? You don't. You automatically leap to the assumption that if it looks like it's occluded, if, if A looks like it's occluding B, A is in front of B. Um, oh, my bunnies! I don't know what happened to them. They got kind of pixelated. But um, the uh, uh, um, all right. Which bunnies are closer to you? The big bunnies are closer to you. Right. Why do you think the big bunnies are closer to you? Because you're making an inference that bunnies are roughly bunny-sized and that if one of these bunnies, what it, would it be, in the same way that I am currently making the assumption that you guys are all more or less people-sized. If I did not make that assumption, I would come to some very odd inferences about the current view that I am looking at. So, you know, the people in the front row, there's a person in the front row, her head is about two degrees of visual angle. Remember, 360 degrees around the head, uh, around, around my head, each degree is about my thumb, so her head takes up about two degrees. And, all right, let's see, there's this guy in the cheap seats back there. His head is only about half a degree. I could make the assumption that he's a pinhead. Right? A guy with a real small head sitting out in the deep back out there. Or actually, I wouldn't make the assumption that he was sitting in the back. I, you know, he's a, a pinhead sitting at the same distance as, as, as large head woman here in the, in the, in the front. Um, but that's dumb. Right? Your visual system knows that's dumb. Your visual system knows people are roughly people-sized. Not exactly people-sized, but roughly people-sized. And if I see a bunch of small things there and a bunch of big things here, hey, gee, odds are that this is closer than that. 
And that's part of what's giving me my current inference that I'm looking at a tilted plane of people in purple seats, is this uh, information about size. If I organize the bunnies the way you guys are organized, I get a much clearer sensation of depth from, from this texture gradient. So now you should be able to see a, a sort of a tilted rabbit plane, right? Even though you know objectively it's just sitting flat on the, uh, on, on the screen. It looks tilted. Was that a hand up there? That was a hand. So I'm, I, I, so, sorry, I missed that. So My previous image, we can do that. Whoop. Yeah, that's another possibility, right? It could be that um, that the uh, that, that well, I mean, in fact, it is just a, a flat image. You actually, you see, you sound like you're getting a sort of a hybrid of a tilted plane with bunnies of of, of, a, of a range of, of different sizes. Actually, we can see that combination here. Um, so we got uh, a, a whole bunch of big bunnies and 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 two little bunnies, right? Where, which is the smallest bunny in this display? The bottom right bunny, right? These guys are identical in size. It's a very minimal display. There's a much more vivid version of this illusion in the, uh, in, in the book, as I recall. It's a very minimal version of, of, of the illusion. Um, because you assume... If you are... <laughs> All right, so I still can't draw. Um, if I am looking at two bunnies, if I'm looking at a ground plane, right, if I'm looking at a ground plane, closer is also lower in the visual field, right? So you make an automatic assumption. That was what was giving this, this, this woman the notion of a faintly tilted plane in the, in, the, in the first bunny example. You make the assumption that the bottom of the image is closer to you than the top of the image. Well, if the bottom of the image, let's go back here. Whoops, not there. If the bottom of the image is closer than the top and these two bunny images are the same size, if this guy is closer, it must also be really small. Right? Remember what I was taught. Suppose, suppose I took the guy from the back row here. His whole upper body fills the sort of top joint of my thumb in visual angle terms. If I moved that image to the front and sat him in a seat here, he would he'd be about the size of, of, of this woman's upper arm. And I would think, that's a really small guy. Right? The whole guy fits on, you know, she could wear him on her, the, 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 instead of wearing your heart on your sleeve, you can wear the whole guy on your sleeve. Um, so that's what's going on here. You're making the assumption that, that small bunny one is closer than small bunny two. They're the same image size. You therefore infer that out in the world, this must be a really small bunny, and that one's just a, a, a reasonably small bunny. Now, the bunny part turns out to be not that critical. Um, here you can also see a nice texture, uh, a, a nice uh, plane going off into the distance with objects that are clearly not meaningful. 
right? Big stuff front and low, small stuff high, um, high in the image, and you simply infer that the, this this is close, and, and and the stuff up there is far, and you get a nice impression of a uh, of a tilted plane. Um, this is a this is one of the cues that is interestingly uh, variable depending on where you're from. So the atmosphere scatters light, particularly water in the atmosphere scatters light. That's why the sky is blue. The result is that objects that are far away tend to be both hazier and bluer. Um, something that you can see in all sorts of uh, works of art. Go to the museum and you can see artists taking advantage of this right, left, and center. Um, and you can probably get, even in my pathetically... Uh, um, reduced version of it, you probably get a sensation of depth here that you don't get here. The geographic aspect of it, who's here, anybody here from Arizona? Doesn't work well in Arizona. I know this because I went to Tucson, went to a meeting in Tucson, and it was boring, so I went out for a walk, and I saw this hill, and I said to the guy who was at the street corner with me, how long would it take me to walk to that hill? And he said, Three days, four days. <laughs> it's like 50 miles away and it's like 6,000 feet high. But it was extremely crisp and uh, there's no water in Arizona. I don't know why people live there. It's like hot all the time and there's no water. And, and, but anyway, um, and aerial perspective cues don't work. So you, you, you're, you're, you're not only are you thirsty, but you're short one depth cue. Um, Anyway, this works much better in, in a humid setting than in a non-humid setting, but, but the point is that, again, you know about... The, 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 this, this is your visual system making use of the physics of the situation in order to infer something about the depth of the situation. Um, you also know about the geometry of the, uh, of, of the world. So this is you know, the extremely limited picture... Um, if I say, oh, you know, this is a, 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 a highway going off to infinity somewhere in Arizona or something like that, um, yeah, yeah, that's not a great vivid picture, but you can believe that because you know implicitly that parallel lines in the world, if they're in depth, will look like they are um, converging towards a vanishing point somewhere. Now, it is sometimes claimed that this, this is known as linear perspective, that linear perspective was discovered by um, artists during the Renaissance. Um, that's only sort of true. What happened in the Renaissance was that they made this knowledge explicit and, be ab and became able to use it, for instance, to make their, their, their artworks. Um, but, you know, your, your cat, and your lizard and stuff know about linear perspective. They just know it implicitly the same way they knew about aerial, um, you know, the, the, the aerial perspective and, and, and size cues and occlusion cues and things like that. You didn't have, it wasn't that we woke up one day in, in, in Renaissance Italy and suddenly we could use this depth cue. It's what we figured out was how to paint with this um, with this depth cue. And you can do all sorts of amusing things with this depth cue. So, for instance, um, lines look more or less the same size, right? I, I, I just drew them with the chalk. They are about the same. They, yeah, yeah, okay, good. Um, let me see if I can change that here. Right. 
the inelegant way to this, the, 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 the sub-PowerPoint demo. Whoops! It's not a great ruler. Ah. All right, even though we are using crude materials, let's do a forced choice vote here. If you now, you know they're at the same size, so it's boring to ask if they're the same size. But if you had to vote bigger or smaller, how many people would vote that the bottom line now looks bigger? How many would vote that the bottom line now looks smaller? Well, I guess that worked, cheap chalk and all. This is an illusion known as the Ponzo illusion. Um, there are a number of ways to account for it, but one of the um, intuitively appealing ones, at least, is to say, you know, what this is doing, even though you're not particularly seeing it um, as, as a depth cue, is it's telling the chunks of your brain that are trying to figure out 3D, hey, I, I see these two parallel, well, they're not parallel lines, I see these two converging lines. You know, if they're parallel lines in the world, they must be going off into depth. If they're going off into depth, then this thing is further away than this one. Well, if this one's further away and they're the same size on my retina, well, this must be bigger. If that's not intuitively obvious to you, think about this as train tracks, right? So here are train tracks going off into the distance. And ask yourself, um, which, which maiden here tied to the tracks is in more distress? Right? It's obvious that this must be the bigger person if we interpret this as, as train tracks um, going off into the distance, even though we know that they're essentially the same size. Right? So you're getting the results of the inference are then influencing what you see. Um, they're influencing other inferences that you make about, about, the, um, about the image. Now, you can exploit these... Um, rules of, uh, of linear perspective in much more elaborate fashion than, uh, than that. Uh, and the great master of that uh, game is, is Escher. Here is one of uh, Escher's pictures. Um, what you want to do, again, I think the image looks rather sharper up on these side guys, but um, ask yourself where the vanishing point is in this image. So look at the, lo the, the, the first floor of that structure. And it's pretty clear that those railings are converging to a vanishing point off to the right somewhere. Well, now look at the top floor. Well, that's converging to a vanishing point off to the left somewhere. You say, oh, it doesn't... And, and then when you try to put the whole thing together, you've got a structure that doesn't quite hang together quite right. This tells you a couple of things. Thing one it tells you is Escher was a very clever draftsman. Thing two that it tells you is that you do a lot of these cal calculations about perspective very locally. What you do is you say... Um, you, you know, you, you, you're... you're attending, let's say, to the lower floor there, and you say, yeah, this all adds up, it makes sense, and then you direct your attention to the upper floor, and it all adds up, it makes sense. It's only when you try to combine all of that across the whole image that you realize that the whole image somehow doesn't quite make sense. And that's how Escher can do things like have staircases that always go up, and, and waterfalls that, that fall, uh, you know, apparently in an infinite loop and things like that. Grab yourself your favorite Escher website and or your favorite uh, Escher book and you can watch him manipulating these sort of depth cues endlessly. It's, it's, it's great entertainment. Um, so 
here, now what I want to do is to bring together sort of bring together the themes of the lecture to this point um, in, a, in a single demo. At the moment, that doesn't look like much of nothing except that, well, I don't know, what does it look like? Cubes, you know, all right. Oh, cubes, that's interesting because why is it, I don't see no cubes. Where, why, where, where's that inference coming from? Well, you're getting the, the, those, those um, what, what you really have is a bunch of Y junctions. And you know about Y junctions, those are probably corners. And they look like they might be kind of cuby corners. But what I'm going to do is rotate each of those. Weak. Now this is a cool uh, the, the stimulus for a variety of reasons. First of all, you're, now you're really seeing a cube, right? No problem. Second of all, there are two cubes, right? There's the cube with its face pointing. So here, let's try this. Yeah, there's this that face pointing down and to the right, or there's the whoops, come back. Here, mousy, mousy. Thank you. Um, there's that face pointing up and to the uh, up and to the left. So you've got two cubes. This is an ambiguous bistable figure. It's known as a Necker cube. Ju ju just that. Um, well, you know, we can we can quickly draw one of those. Endless fun for doodling again. You can make yourself ambiguous figures instantly. Um, that, that figure by itself is known as a Necker cube after a guy named Necker. Um, so, you're inferring the cube. You're inferring one of two cubes. The cube isn't particularly there. I mean, right, the, 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 black, the black stuff is, uh, all you're seeing is the vertices of this, of this cube, but you're still managing to um, infer the rest of the cube. Um, you can probably see the lines of the cube in the black region, right? Yes. In fact, you can see the intersection, if you straight up from here, you can see the intersection of two lines that aren't there. Um, you're, you're managing to create. And I can make those lines go away. Now take a look at that cube, at the figure, and imagine that what you're looking at is... Um, a cube, a, a sort of a wireframe cube that's behind a sheet of, uh, of sort of black Swiss cheese. You're looking at it through holes. Can you get it to go back there? If you get it to go back there and you can hold it back there, you probably notice that the subjective contours pretty much disappear on you. Why is that? Well, if it's behind, there's no reason that you should be seeing those contours. They would be invisible. And so the invisible contours become invisible. Now if you bring the cube back in front in your perception, you'll see, oh yeah, now if that cube is floating in front, I ought to be able to see the whole cube, and now I can see the subjective contours. So you can make the subjective contours contingent on whether or not, uh, on, on which particular interpretation you care to give to the uh, image. So this... I think this illustrates very nicely the notion that what you are seeing is um, your current hypothesis about what might be generating the image on the, on the screen. The other thing that, uh, another thing that it points out is that you are only willing to entertain a limited set of hypotheses. 
It is extremely hard to look at this and see it as, however many it is, eight um, little discs with chicken feet in them. Right, with little Ys in them of some sort. It's very, very hard to see that, even though that is a perfectly consistent with the image hypothesis. You are out there trying to make a guess about the world, and you're not willing to entertain all of them. At least most of them are, are, are immediately relegated to the realm of the very unlikely. Um, a few of the... And normally, out in the world, what happens is, is, is that um, a single hypothesis immediately pops to the fore and you accept it. In weird situations like this, we can get you to entertain a few of them. Um, but, uh, but it is very... It, well, you, you, you immediately narrow down the realm of possibilities to a few, um, not to an infinity, even though there is an infinite number of possible ways to generate this thing. Um, shadows I've already shown are a depth cue. The reason for putting this nice piece of Renaissance art up there is to point out that while shadows are a depth cue, you're not actually terribly picky about the physics of the situation. Um, at least not the global physics of the situation. So where, where's the sun here? This is an outdoor scene. Where's, where, where's the sun coming from? Well, if you look at the people in the lower left, or the people on the ground plane there, it's pretty clear that the sun must be down and to the left somewhere, Right? Well, look at the shadow underneath that portico. Oh, no, the sun must be up and to the right there somewhere. Um, there's no consistent source of illumination in this image. But you're perfectly willing to accept, but you're perfectly willing to use the shadow information to give you depth information. It's giving it to you locally. The fact that it doesn't add up globally doesn't bother you, and, um, and it, doesn't, it doesn't even bother you to the extent that it bothers you in the Escher picture where the, the, uh, um, the building was actually impossible. Here you don't recognize the impossibility um, at all unless it's pointed out to you directly. Um, and finally, I should add to the list three more that are rather hard to demonstrate, uh, that, uh, are hard to put up just as, as, uh, as PowerPoint slides. Um, when people uh, think about depth perception, if they think about depth perception, it's stereopsis, binocular vision that they typically think of. Um, your two eyes are in two different places in your head, for most of us. Um, if you blink from eye to eye or just cover your one eye after the other, it's actually better if you hold one finger out in, in front of you and blink from eye to eye, you'll see that the image in the two eyes is not the same. Um, the difference in those two images is highly geometrically regular, and you make use of that regularity as a depth cue. It's so-called binocular disparity, very useful depth cue. It's what's giving you the magic eye demos that you, uh, that, that, um, you get those, those posters that if you cross your eyes just right, they jump out in depth. Those still around? No, 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 okay. Um, it's a very useful depth cue. It's a little on the overrated side because it's a lot of fun to study. Um, people who think that binocular vision is the be-all and end-all of depth cues should cover one eye and ask if the, uh, if, if the world... Um, suddenly looks very flat. It looks a little flatter, but it, you, I can still perfectly well tell who's in front of whom. Um, on the other hand, if you want to see what stereo is doing for you on a beautiful day like today, go outside, lie under a tree. 
close one eye and look up into the branches and try to figure out which twigs are in front of other twigs. And you'll have a very hard time doing it. Open the eye and the whole thing will jump out at you in depth. That's the sort of information that, that, that stereo is giving you. You don't have to do it with stereo. Motion parallax to jump to the bottom of that list um, is a similar sort of geometric uh, clue. Um, if I'm here and then I'm here, the image changes in a geometrically regular way. You guys are sliding around on, on my retina in such a way that these guys are moving more than you guys out in, in, in the back on, on my retina. And I know that, again, implicitly, like I know linear parallax, and I can use that to infer depth. Try this under the tree and you can see the same thing. Close one eye. Look up into the branches. The branches look relatively flat. Now, rather than opening this eye, just move your head back and forth, and the tree will jump out at you in depth. It's actually quite striking. You should try this sometime. I don't know if anybody ever does take me up on, on this suggestion. So if you actually try it, let me know so that I know that somebody actually tried it. Um, oh, and vergence is another one of these geometrical cues. Um, hold your finger out in front of you. Look at your finger. Now, move the finger towards you, holding it as a single finger as long as you can. So I can watch you go cross-eyed. Right? What you are doing is converging your eyes. Um, and if you could move your finger further out, you would be diverging your eyes. Well, what you can think of that um, as doing is, is taking like a pair of sticks and, and, and pointing them at the object. This is the axes of your, 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 your visual axes, in a sense, you're, you're, you're pointing at the object um, there. And the angle formed by those sticks is narrower if you're looking far away than it is if you're looking close up. And you have a fairly impoverished ability to use that as a depth cue, too. If you were a chameleon, you'd be much better at this. Chameleons have eyes that move independently and are very sensitive to the, uh, at the angle of... Um, that their eyes are pointing. And in fact, that's how they go. Yeah, you, you, you've, you've seen the, the Animal Planet kind of videos where the chameleon's tongue goes you know, out the length of its body and it grabs a fly or something like that. How does it know where the fly is? Well, it knows by measuring the angle of its eyes. How do we know that? Well, we know that because somebody went and put glasses on a chameleon that diverged the eye. So that in order to, to, to point its eyes at the, um, at the fly, it, was, it, it, it had the angle wrong, basically. So you put a fly on a popsicle stick, you put the glasses on the chameleon, and then you film the chameleon's tongue, and the chameleon keeps missing. If I put those prisms on your eyes, you will adapt, and you will eventually be able to catch the fly again. Um, should you be so inclined. Um, the chameleon turns out to, to be a less adaptable creature than you and will not adapt. Uh, similarly, you can do the same kind of game with chickens. Put, put a pair of prisms on your eyes that divert everything off, say, 15 degrees to the left. And then if I tell you, pick this up, you'll reach 15 degrees in the wrong direction. But eventually you'll learn. Put the same prisms on a chicken. Put some grain down. Here, the grain's here. The chicken sees it over there. Chicken's pecking over there. Chicken's not getting any grain. Chicken will do that forever. Um, and will apparently not learn to, to, uh, to get it right. Um, okay, now, what I want to... Oh, good. I left myself with enough time to talk about inferences in a more global sense 
of uh, combining information from across the senses. So you've got this job to try to figure out what's going on. Um, I've been talking about doing that specifically within the visual system. But you're, gain, you're, you're collecting information from, um, from multiple sources and taking whatever the best information is. So if I show you a movie, right, you, do, you, you get captured by the visual information and you're perfectly happy to see the word or to hear the words coming out of the mouth of the, uh, of the guy on the screen, even though it's coming out of some speaker on the side. And it doesn't matter if they've got fancy Dolby stereo or something like that. Use a cheap you know, simple uh, uh, speaker sitting off to the side and, and you'll still hear it as coming out of the guy's mouth if you're watching it. So you're combining information from multiple senses. The particular example I thought I would um, discuss with you is the, um, is, is the ever-pleasant example of motion sickness. Um, so if I... Um, when I first came to graduate school, um, my lab was doing research um, uh, for NASA on, uh, on the effects of looking at large fields that were rotating. This is sort of omni-theater stuff. You know, if you look at a whole field that's rotating uh, counterclockwise around your line of sight, you feel like you're rotating clockwise. Um, meantime, guys up at Brandeis who we were collaborating with were doing the same sort of thing, but their dependent measure was how long it took you to throw up. Um, fortunately, that was not my introduction to graduate school. Um, but, but it will make you sick. Right? How, how many people, well, we might as well collect some data here. How many people have ever been motion sick here? Okay, What's, what made you sick? Motion, yes, thank you. <laughs> Could we get a little more, a little more specific while keeping within the realm of, of, of uh, good taste here? Everybody got okay. Yeah. Reading on a bumpy bus. Ah, reading on a bumpy bus. So this this is this is that's that's one good example. Anybody got another good? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe yes. No. Oh, okay. She was going to give the answer. The uh, so so the answer that she's giving. Well, all right. We'll take one more here. Oh, spinning around in a circle. Did you get sick while you were spinning around in a circle, or after you stopped? After you stopped, because and and, and when you stopped, you felt like you were spinning around in, 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 in the other direction. So when, when you're spinning yourself around in a circle, you, you have in your inner ears um, these tubes filled with fluid. And uh, a quick drawing here. Uh, quick bit of vestibular physiology. Need a nice fat piece of chalk. Um, so, oh, it's yellow. Whoop. You've got these tubes inside your, uh, your ears that are filled with a fluid. And um, inside a little space in there are these hairs. If you bend the hairs, it sends a signal off to your brain. That's, that, that's the transducer, the equivalent of the photoreceptors in the eyes. Um, if you rotate your head... Um, 
the, it, it, well, you can imagine, t- t- imagine taking a bucket and starting to move. The fluid stays behind for a little while, right, and sloshes around. That's why it's hard to carry buckets of liquid around if they're too full. So if you rotate your head, the fluid tends to stay put, and, and it moves over the hairs, bending them and telling you that you've moved your head. That's what's telling you about this sort of motion. Well, you spin around for a while, and the, the, the fluid in here eventually catches up with you and starts moving. Then you stop... And the fluid keeps going. And you say, The other way you can do this, by the way, so this very carefully calibrated system, turns out that alcohol is lighter than, um, than this fluid. If you drink, the reason you get dizzy is not because you've pickled your brain, which is also true, but because you've diluted this fluid with alcohol and this stuff is uncalibrated. And, and, and now you, you move your head a little and the brain says, oh man, we just moved a lot, man. Oh, don't, don't move that head. No, 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 no. So that's... What, uh, what she was pointing out is that what turns out to be the great stimulus for um, making yourself motion sick is a mismatch between the information that in particular this vestibular system this balance system, and your eyes are giving you. So the example given here of um, reading on the bus is, is, is a, a marvelous example because what you're doing is, you know, in order to read, you're, you're holding this thing so it's a relatively stable visual stimulus. Nothing's happening here, right? But your vestibular system is saying, lots of stuff is happening, and your digestive system is busy saying, Um, Same thing happens on a plane, right? The problem on a plane is that when the plane bounces up and down, I mean, short of catastrophic bouncing up and down, when the plane hits turbulence and is bouncing up and down, what do you see? Nothing, right? There's nothing happening visually. What do you feel? You feel boom, boop, boop, and 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 then you know, you know, boop. And the interesting question is. Why do you get sick? It's fine to say that the mismatch of visual and vestibular information turns out to be nauseating, but why should it make you sick? The answer is it's another inference, but the question is what's the inference? So the next question then is what's the inference? What are you guessing? Anybody got an eye? You're guessing that the, the airline food was lousy. The, yeah. Yeah, you're guessing that you were poisoned. Why are you guessing that you were poisoned? Your vision is, uh, no, it's, it's not the it's it's the mismatch that's critical. If you just make your vision strange, um, you know, I could I could show you you know I could show you weird stuff you hadn't seen before, and you wouldn't all like throw up. <laughs> and I can also bounce you around, and and until I do fairly dramatic stuff, you won't throw up. But if I mismatch. What you think, what your visual system is telling you about your body and, and, and what your um, vestibular system is telling you. Um, what this is, is a protection of sorts against neurotoxins. How do poisons work? Well, some of them work by attacking your nervous system. A lot of them work by attacking your nervous system. How are you, the owner of the nervous system, going to know? You're going to think, oh, I can't integrate anymore. 
you know, I, you know I, I, I can no longer remember that I love my mother. The sorts of things that immediately present themselves to you as you are being poisoned are, you know, your senses are coming unglued from each other. And so, if your, your eyes are saying boing de boing de boing and your, your, your vestibular system is saying this, your body infers that you have been poisoned and a useful idea if you've been poisoned is to get rid of whatever you just ate. Um, so that's, that's what's... Ha- and, and, the, and why does this happen on airplanes and stuff like that? You weren't built to be flying around at 30,000 feet bouncing around in the clouds. It just wasn't what nature set you up to do and so you get the unfortunate situation where even though you haven't been poisoned, you get sick. Okay. Enough of that cheery topic.